0: You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KABC 790. This is your host Matt Mattern, and uh, today's guest. We're pleasure to have Steve Wilburn, CEO of Verde Watts, on the program. Uh, welcome to you, Steve. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, Steve, and kind of what your life path has been to uh, to come to Verde Watts, and what uh, what motivated you to to start the company? Uh,
1: Great question. Uh, Basically my entire career, since I uh, served in the Marine Corps uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, when I was discharged, I attended college, uh, became a chemical engineer, and was always curious about uh, energy in its various forms. I worked at Monsanto uh, Corporation And one of my early responsibilities was to take a look at, back in the early 80s, of alternative forms of energy, alternative pathways. At that time, the alternatives were mostly to coal. Coal was the primary fuel uh, for the United States uh, for decades. Um, My group, uh, as we evolved, we became more involved using natural gas, methane, and that was the infancy of the solar uh, generation. And so ever since that particular moment in time, um, my career has advanced. I did consulting work with NASA on what we were going to produce the hydrogen uh, fuel for the fuel shuttle. When that program came online uh, at the Kennedy Space Center, eventually it was decided to produce that fuel in Alabama, but again, cutting edge, taking a look at technology, finding different pathways uh, to create the fuels that we need, um, looking at it from a standpoint of the environment, anything we could do to minimize the impacts on the environment, and still be able to produce fuel and energy cost effectively. Uh, that's pretty much what I do. Uh, so, uh, I was. What- When
0: did you start uh, Verde Watts?
1: I started Verde Watts in 2009, excuse me. In 2009, um, I had another company, Firm Green, with some patents in landfill gas to energy. Uh, Verde Watts was primarily to take a look at um, different pathways for solar and the integration of batteries, which was a fairly new technology as you can imagine in 2009.
0: So uh, tell us about how the company evolved uh, from its infancy to now.
1: Basically, we took
0: the patents that I had and patents that we acquired,
1: and we perfected them and commercialized them. It took us a number of years to commercialize uh, these ideas and concepts. These are all well-proven now. We've done projects in Brazil, we're doing projects here in the United States and abroad. Um, so, our primary focus right now at Verde Watts is in the ability to tie together communications along with the energy production so that everyone knows we, we call them microgrids now instead of major grids. Microgrid is a smaller version of a grid and it's dedicated to certain energy users. And we protect those users, we keep them online, but we have to communicate uh, in order to make that happen. We have to know exactly the energy demand that they need and the energy production that we're capable of producing.
0: So uh, I've read a bit about uh, microgrids, and and uh, from what I understand, it uh, is the wave of the future to have a more resilient grid so that We don't have uh, power shortages, say, when wind and solar may not be available, say, solar during the evening or wind when it's not, uh, you know, breezy outside. So tell us kind of how that works in, in a practical way.
1: Absolutely. When a resource like a solar,
0: obviously, if the sun
1: is not shining a rainy day or it's in the evening, there's no power that's gonna come from the solar cells. So therefore that power has to come from somewhere. That's what source does it have? If you're not connected to the grid, it has to come from a battery uh, source. And that allows the user to schedule the time they use their energy more efficiently. So they generate it during the day when the sun or the wind is blowing in the case of a wind project. And that energy is stored in the batteries, and it is used by the on-demand, then, as the energy is required, it's made available uh, to the end user.
0: So why are these microgrids important uh, to, say, California and and to the rest of the country, the rest of the world, uh, and how are we going to uh, build them out uh, going forward? That's a
1: great question. Basically what happens is when you're looking at a grid in the old days of the early grid, Edison, et cetera, every town had its own power plant. There was no interconnected grid. So think of that as a mini grid unto itself. And it operated to the best of its ability to serve its geographical location. We're going to a concept of that or a subset of that where we get together a building or a group of buildings or businesses and we aggregate those electrical loads into a micro grid or a subset of the big utility grid. Why? It's much more efficient. It can gain up to 80 to 85 percent efficiencies of the generation as opposed to the utility grid which is often less than 50% efficient.
0: Well, tell us how is it that a microgrid can be 80 to 85% efficient versus 50 to 55% efficient?
1: Great question. Again, it's basically the transmission and the distribution. For every mile you move power, you you lose efficiency. You go through transformers, you go through distribution substations, Every time that energy is transferred, you lose efficiency. So if you're in a microgrid on site or contiguous properties, you can imagine that that is a much more efficient distribution pathway. And that's primarily uh, the reason. Plus the scheduling uh, where you're able to schedule the loads in accordance with the demand.
0: Well, you, I, I read a little bit about your company and they were, said uh, that you guys focus on projects that are between 200 kilowatts to 50 megawatts uh, maybe right. you could explain kind of the difference between the magnitudes of those projects and and uh, what type of projects that you're doing that fall into either or both of those uh, categories
1: yeah primarily on the smaller end one would conceive of a of a building complex like for residential, condominiums at the 200 kW level are a Walgreens are a commercial retail outlet that would be at that size range. When you go all the way up to 50 megawatts, now you're dealing with either city blocks or you're dealing with large industrial complexes. That's primarily the difference. It's the size of the single block user that determines whether it's 200 kW or 50 megawatts.
0: So uh, in terms of efficiency that you're, you're gaining from 50 to 55% of a regular grid from to 80 to 85% efficient for a microgrid, it seems as though the cost uh, of the electricity would drop if you're getting uh, much higher levels of efficiency. Is that, is that a fair statement?
1: It, it, it's a statement that we need to analyze just a little bit further. Uh, in other words, there you have the pathway to cheaper energy, but as you are developing the microgrid technology, remember we're talking small scale, relatively speaking, to a massive power distribution system. That infrastructure cost is there and heavily subsidized. In the case of uh, a microgrid, that is not the case that is a direct cost to the users of that particular system it is cost competitive yes in most cases most cases in the united states there are pockets where electrical energy some in the midwest and some other areas uh in even the west uh, where that's not quite the case it's very close but not quite as competitive
0: so what kind of cost infrastructure is required to, uh, to build one of these systems out, a micro Yeah,
1: what you're looking at uh, would be, let's say, for example, an office complex, an office building. So you would take a look at what, how we're going to supply this office with its power. Is there parking areas and parking garages that could be covered with solar? that's one good example. Uh then that solar energy would be made available to the end users. But again that's only when the sun shines. So and it's not dark out. So if we're taking a look at a more uh around the clock operation, we would have to incorporate batteries. So the batteries then would store assuming we were connected to the grid even we would buy power at certain times of the day when the grid power is relatively speaking less expensive and store that energy for later use Are we? Uh,
0: hmm? i'm gonna steve i'm gonna have to cut you there but we're going to get back to this uh, interesting question of how uh, a microgrid is adapted to uh to our modern uh, world here and uh, okay. you're listening to unite and heal america on kbc 790 And we'll be right back in one minute.
2: As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-4U. That's 844 mlg for u or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.
0: You're listening to Unite and Heal America with KABC 790. My guest again, Steve Wilburn, CEO of Verde Watts. And Steve, you're telling us, walking us through an example of a microgrid at an office building and putting solar and batteries uh, at a compound to uh, increase efficiencies. Um, Take us uh, to the next level and how you would do this, maybe on a bigger scale.
1: Sure. For example, in an industrial facility, let's go to one of the larger ends, um, where you have a fabrication uh, company that uses a considerable amount of electricity and thermal energy, heat. We would take a look in those particular applications of renewable natural gas, which you can get from landfills and other sources distributed through the pipeline. This is becoming commonplace now. These are being reused sources of of methane. And what that does is allow us to generate electricity in a gas engine, but also capture the heat that is normally lost in the combustion process. That's wasted energy. Normally the building can use that for hot water or the factory or chilled water, even cooling. Uh, Either way, it's thermal energy. So we look at all pathways uh, when we examine an application for a microgrid. We look at sun, we look at natural gas, we look at renewable natural gas. We even nowadays look at hydrogen, uh, but we also almost always look at battery technology.
0: So uh, what's what's happening on the battery technology front? I, I know there's been a lot of advances I read uh, recently that uh, they're proposing a very large facility in Utah to to, uh, hold energy in a hydrogen format and then releasing it uh, in that way. Uh, What types of batteries is your company using and and where do you see the future leading in in battery technology?
1: Well, battery uh, to an engineer like myself, especially an energy engineer, It's just a way to store energy. How you store it and the method of storage defines whether it's stored in a lithium-ion battery. You probably know that from your cell phone. It's charged with a lithium-ion battery is in your cell phone and it's recharged. Whereas you look at the hydrogen example you're talking about, that's storing under pressure, either in a tank or in a cavern someplace. Hydrogen or methane And then that is released and used upon demand. Water, think of a large reservoir of water, a hydro. It's in a sense that lake is a large battery. So it's storing potential energy that that you allow to be discharged through a turbine, generates through the hydraulic forces
0: there, power. Does that help? Sure. And in terms of... um... You know how these microgrids are going to work in the current, uh, I guess, macro grids that are existing. Uh, what can smaller communities do to uh, increase their um, kind of self-sufficiency and get off of, or at least have less uh, dependence on the macro grid?
1: Uh, Basically, the integration of microgrids uh, into a larger usable form of energy by a city would be dependent upon, number one, the type of connection, you know, the wiring and transmission system that exists. And then number two, the ability to communicate so that the dispatcher, if you would, at the city could aggregate some of these microgrids into a larger block of energy during rolling blackouts, so that some of the energy could be contributed by a microgrid that is being used by others who aren't members of the microgrid.
0: Well, that's, I guess, the, the potential of the resilience of, of smaller communities having this microgrid, so we don't have uh, a big crash like they did in Texas. Uh, do we see any action on the governmental front either at the state level in California or the federal level uh, across the country that is uh, supporting or encouraging the use of microgrids?
1: It's beginning. It's actually gaining momentum. And with programs like yours, educating the public about the benefits of microgrids, I think that's going to help. Politicians respond to pressure. And when rolling blackouts occur, and people are without uh, the use of energy, uh, they tend to gripe, right? And right. they tend to put pressure on that. So that becomes part of the regulatory process eventually. And we're seeing the, uh, from Texas and in California over the last couple of years, we're seeing that roll into a, uh, uh, a, a position where microgrids are now gaining favor, regulatory-wise and with the consumer.
0: Well, I interviewed uh, Rex Paris, the mayor of Lancaster, a few weeks ago, and we're talking about uh, the work that his city has done to uh, maybe be less dependent upon the utilities. And I don't know if you're familiar with the the Lancaster model and what he's done, but uh, what are you seeing in terms of kind of reducing the dependency of uh, your clients on on uh, the standard utilities,
1: exactly. Uh, we work with our clients on a direct basis, so they seek us out and they want to either exit the grid, either for economic and reliability reasons, or for their own uh, particular uh, need to go renewable, and they want to do that on site. So what we're what we're finding is that people like the mayor of Lancaster and others are looking at an integrated model. What's in it for their citizens? What's best for their location, their city? How can we make better choices about energy? Uh, To us, a BTU is a BTU. A British thermal unit is a British thermal unit. You ascribe attributes to that. This is renewable. This is dirty, et cetera, et cetera. This is reliable. This is unreliable. What we mean by that, you still need the kilowatt hour. You still need that unit of energy to do the job that you need it to do. So what we try to do is educate the officials like the mayor on the best way to acquire that energy with the lowest impact to the environment at the lowest possible
0: cost. So uh, how did you come up with the uh, name of your company? (laughs) That's a good question. I was on an airplane.
1: (laughs) I have not Somebody else asked me that recently. I had to think about it. And I remembered I was flying back actually from Brazil. And uh, I had a company called Firm Green, Reliable Green Energy, right? Firm. And that was in the biogas area. And now we were working in electricity. And I was thinking of watts. What kind of name could I associate with watts? And I thought of green. And then uh, I flashed on verdict uh hispanic uh spanish for green and i put those two together verde watts researched it found that that was a name that i could register and trademark and that's how i started it
0: so how does your company uh help to heal the environment we do it in a lot
1: of different ways first of all before we do anything we study it i've been in it for better part of four decades and there's been a lot of advances in energy technology and the ability to assess environmental impacts. So what we do is we wanna make sure that the solutions that we provide cause no harm. If they do cause harm, we minimize that harm. Nothing, uh, Everything has an impact, okay? There's nothing that doesn't have an impact. We have to minimize those impacts though. And we have to make our clients aware and the people in the surrounding areas aware of what we're doing, how we're doing it, and what the physical impacts are and environmental impacts are on those, uh, those affected.
0: So what kind of renewable energy product, uh, projects is your company currently involved in?
1: We're involved in hydrogen from uh, methane, landfill gas, methane primarily. We're involved in electrolysis production of hydrogen. Uh, We're working with a large stadium uh, complex right now uh, on that very thing where we would uh, take the gray water from the building as the people wash their hands and other sources of water, drinking powder and water. Uh, We would take that and split that using solar and battery power to make hydrogen, hydrogen then would be used in a fuel cell to power the building and that's pretty out there as far as state-of-the-art goes and uh the client wanted a world-class solution and we're happy to try to provide that
0: that's uh that's very exciting stuff i've uh i'm the owner of my second hydrogen vehicle so i'm i'm a big hydrogen proponent but uh you know, I, I think that uh, the question is how can people create hydrogen most efficiently and so there's less energy loss and uh, kind of minimize the impacts. Um, how are you doing this in terms of process to, to create a hydrogen product, which is uh, competitive with uh, other energy sources?
1: Methane is still uh, one of the uh, easiest pathways, we'll call it most efficient pathways. Electrolysis of water is fairly efficient, but it does require an intense amount of of energy. Whereas in the form of natural gas or methane, as we call it, uh, methane then uh, is able to be disassociated into hydrogen. And we're able to do I'm that. Have to, very...
0: uh, I'm going to have to jump in there for a second, Steve, and just sure. give our uh, listeners uh, that uh, we're going to be back in right one minute. Uh, this is Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, our guest, Steve Wilburn, CEO of Verde Watts, uh, explaining to us a little bit about uh, hydrogen technology. And we'll be back in a minute to hear more. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Madden. Your host guest today is Steve Wilburn, CEO of Verde Watts. And we're talking with Steve about a project he was working on recently for a major stadium where they're going to take their gray water and split it uh, into hydrogen using solar and battery uh, power that they've uh, gotten from the facility. So it's pretty exciting cutting-edge stuff. uh, Do you see that rolling out more commercially, Steve, in the next uh, five to 10 years?
1: I do. I think once your proof of concepts become more mainstream like this and smaller scale uh, and you have more uh, focus on the equipment that's necessary for the infrastructure to support that, yeah, I think you'll see that
0: for sure. In terms of uh, solar power generation. I know we've seen a lot of improvements uh, in in efficiency of, of capturing energy from the sun. Uh, do you see that curve continuing to, to rise where we're capturing uh, it, sun's energy more and more efficiently and, and how will that uh, affect us going forward?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, just in the last decade, uh, we've seen increases as as great as 40 to 50% on the efficiency. I look for that to continue to, to go in a more positive direction. As we evolve other materials and other ways of capturing it, the glass is more efficient, the coefficient of transfusion, as we call it, is more efficient. All of these problems uh, that were in the early uh, stages have been worked on aggressively. And uh, I look forward to some really significant breakthroughs in the next five years.
0: So, you know, going back to what we're doing in California and what uh, smaller communities can do to to take control of their uh, kind of fate. uh, What are the types of things that that smaller communities or groups of businesses can do to to get off the grid or have a microgrid where they're not as dependent upon the major utilities Uh, and where do we see where do you see this going
1: i see it in a concept we call islanding, where you separate yourself from the grid you still have an umbilical cord so to speak you are attached to the grid still but it's not your could not be your primary let's say source of power it's there as secondary If it's available at a cost-effective basis, let's say at night, to be able to use to charge batteries uh, in a solar plant, that would be the use of the bigger grid. Uh, So I see it evolving from a standpoint of a cooperation where where the neighbors on contiguous properties get together and share energy. Uh, They they form a micro or a mini grid, if you would. Very reliable, very cost-effective. And environmentally beneficial as well.
0: At this point in time, I I know friends who have solar power have told me that uh, many times they're not getting a very good rate when they end up selling their excess power to the utilities. Uh, What can we do to kind of change that? Is it battery technology, so those people can store that energy at their own homes, or is it sharing it Amongst the microgrids, or uh, a combination uh, of of all of the above or negotiating better prices with utilities, uh, you see any any progress on working with utilities on this front?,
1: yeah, let me seg- let me see if I can slice that up just a bit. Uh, let's talk about the utilities at first. Utilities uh, are in business to return to shareholders. They're almost all publicly traded, except for the municipal-owned utilities. Uh, so they have an incentive—shareholder incentive, not a ratepayer incentive per se, right? So right. that's part of the problem of the structure. So unless you want to fundamentally change that structure, I don't see that changing much. Um, so, in order to uh, answer your question, I think fairly, I think battery technology is the key, where someone gets the benefit of the lower cost compared to the utility energy that they've generated. Whether or not they can sell that for a profit, that remains to be seen, okay? That requires some infrastructure improvements, bi-directional uh, power transmission and consumption. We're not quite there yet uh, with the big grid. In a mini grid are a series of buildings connected to each other. Of course, you could design that, and I think that's a good starting point
0: and when you talk about bi directional uh, power um right. capabilities, maybe you could uh, tell walk our listeners through that and uh, sure. how that operates and how a solar uh a house that is on has solar can can up, upload its power onto the grid
1: absolutely. Let's let's look at um, a Tesla automobile just for a moment in a solar house. When I say bidirectional, I also mean that the if the solar car battery is connected to the house bidirectionally, we're able to take that power from the battery up to a predetermined amount to give you a certain range and use that to offset higher cost power in the home. So that is also a bi-directional capability that we have. Now, the other bi-directional is, as it sounds, the utility at night, we can buy power from them if it's available. So we can put that power in the batteries. During the day, we could sell that power conceptually to third parties or ourselves as it's available. That's what I meant by bi-directional.
0: I know that uh, a number of companies are selling these batteries that people can put in their homes. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that uh, something that uh, you, your company is involved in or what, uh, what kind of work are you doing with batteries uh, on with your clients?
1: We are, and we're also putting in independent large scale uh, battery storage. We have projects in, not in this country but in other countries as large as 600 megawatts under construction Uh, and that will be in honduras for example and so we look at batteries uh, as a sponge we take suck in power when it's available at a reasonable price and we squeeze it out when it's needed so that's really the way i look at a battery it's like a sponge
0: now, in terms of the project in Honduras, uh, how, what uh, what does that entail? What kind of batteries are you using, and uh, how much power is uh, six hundred megawatts?
1: That's a lot of power. That's six thousand kilowatts. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, enough to let's say Lancaster uh, would would be somewhat. Um, Larger than that, the, that city. But this is enough to handle a significant, let's say one third of the area of the country uh, on an emergency basis. Um, so as the power uh, goes down from hydro, they have a lot of hydro power. And during those seasons of a drought or when it's not readily available, these batteries will help balance those loads out significantly in the country so we use two types of batteries lithium ion batteries and we also use an iron flow battery uh, which is a chemical battery Uh, it's a liquid Um, so there's several different evolving technologies coming out lithium ion is what tesla is probably the most famous for
0: right i've read a bit about these I think the iron batteries that they have in kind of truck size um, and uh, they can store a bunch of power and and the advantages, they're kind of a low-tech solution and uh, maybe a little more environmentally friendly and that uh, they don't maybe cause much uh, mining to be done. I'm not sure.
1: That's part of it.
0: Uh, Then also you
1: have the disposal cost. Uh, Lithium, after, let's say, five to seven years, most of those battery current technology, becomes less efficient. You charge and recharge it a number of cycles. Each time you do that, it becomes less efficient to store the power. So these iron flow batteries and other types of technologies uh, that are coming onto the market, uh, chemical-type processes, if you will, those are going to probably take over the large-scale um, storage industry. Well, one,
0: the, one of the things I'd like you to talk about when uh, after we get back from our next break, which is the disposal and mining costs uh, environmentally for lithium ba- batteries. And, and uh, it's something that I've been concerned about as they roll out more and more electric cars we're going to have more and more lithium batteries, which uh, there's a lot of mining that's involved in. And then also the disposal of that many could be millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of batteries. If we go full lithium ion for batteries, battery powered cars across the uh, the world, we're going to have a tremendous amount of uh, material that's going to need to be used by that. Uh, so that's something I'd like you to talk about when we get back from our break. Uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and my guest, Steve Wilburn, CEO of Verity Watts, uh, talking to you about, uh, the environment and, and lithium batteries. So, uh, we'll be back in one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern. Guest today is Steve Wilburn, CEO of Verity Watts. Uh, Steve, if you could answer that question we posed right before the break about uh, these lithium batteries that are being generated by the the tens of thousands and pretty soon in the millions for battery-powered cars, how are we going to, uh, you know, judge the impact of mining for all those uh, metals as well as the disposal cost?
1: Well, there are impacts, whatever we do, uh, as we move about the world, we cause impacts. One of the, the problems with mining is the pollution of water and air and soil. Uh, so when we're engaged in heavy mining practices, we have those types of environmental impacts. We have to weigh that, the risk to the environment, the efficiency of our daily lives to dispatch energy. And that's sort of what's been done. But your program and others like yours, and I really appreciate your program, is to uh, inform people, give them a chance to hear about these impacts and how severe they are on the environment. It's a major problem. Uh, Most of the battery companies now have recycling programs. Where at the end of its useful life, they will take the battery back, and they will try to break that down into some usable components. But that's in its infancy; uh, it has a ways to go. Good progress, but uh, we're not there yet.
0: So how do you how do you go about measuring these costs when you're when you're doing a project and uh, determining what's the most efficient and least environmentally damaging uh, method to, to go about uh, getting power to your clients? What are, what are the factors that you're looking at?
1: Now, we look, we look at their usage profile first. Are there ways we can reduce or negate your energy usage and waste? That's the best way. Don't use it, okay? I mean, that sounds a little draconian, but it's true. There are ways to make your process, even your home, more efficient. So that's the way you use energy we look at first. Then we look at how to supply that energy and what choices we have to make in order to get that energy that we require, that absolute amount of energy we require. We try to do that in the cleanest form possible. Solar is one of those pathways for the homeowner. the ability to store in batteries, as we talked about, enables that to go for a longer period of time without having to take dark or gray energy in off of the uh, the grid.
0: So in terms of uh, negating usage of uh, energy in the first place, that's a, a great place to start, I think, and something that yep. uh, is, is not talked about enough, which is if we can reduce our needs, then we will have, uh, don't have to create as much energy. And it's obviously pretty simple to, to talk about, but uh, we've, we've definitely seen a lot of improvement in terms of the efficiency of home products that use a lot less energy than they used right. to. Um, right. Do you think that it's useful to have more legislation to uh, to encourage that type of innovation by manufacturers, or is that something that uh, we should let the free market uh, sort out?
1: Uh, I'm pretty much a free market person, but I would say this, that I think incentives, rather than regulation per se, incentives, so that if I'm a manufacturer and I can meet a certain incentive, there may be a tax uh implication for me in a positive way that i think i would get behind that type of of legislation
0: right it seems as though uh, encouraging our manufacturers to produce energy efficient products would be yes. a, a very beneficial thing for for everybody in society because then we ha- don't have to have as many power plants and uh that that's going to you know, we're down to everybody's benefit. Uh, do you think that uh, we're going to see the types of improvements in uh, cutting the amount of greenhouse gas that the state of California, for for one, has set in terms of targets uh, in the next ten years?
1: I think uh, that basically you're going to see more and more uh, aggressive action having to be taken as our populations increase the amount of cars that we have on the roads increase the amount of pollution from that those sources increase we have to do something and i think you're going to see more and more aggressive policies passed
0: now how does uh, how does the work that you do as far as creating a micro grids um, how is that going to help reduce the amount of carbon uh, emissions and and other greenhouse gases. When you compare us to the grid sources of power, or we use
1: the word alternative sources of power, what's the alternative? Is mine cleaner? We'll use that word relative, right? Is mine cleaner? Does it put out less CO2? Does it put out less methane? Am I emitting less harmful pollutants into the atmosphere. That's really the way you gauge that. And that's easily done because we know the mix of the electric utilities. We know what resources they're using to supply you the power. We know what our pollution index looks like from our sources. So it's a delta. It's a
0: comparison. And uh, tell us, what uh, is is the use of a microgrid? Is it cleaner than... Than uh, getting regular electricity off the grid.
1: It again, uh, that's a good question. But let me make sure that it, that I'm fair to to the question. Uh, assuming the microgrid is using all clean forms of energy to generate its power, uh, it would be solar, battery power technology, uh, very clean engine technology with the gas engine technology, for example, with the proper pollution controls on to the engines. When you're comparing that to a coal-fired power plant in Arizona, putting power onto the grid, there's a significant benefit to the microgrid.
0: Okay. But uh, say comparing it to, because I believe that uh, California has kind of gotten off coal, the use of coal, for the most part, even its imported power, uh, I believe, has little to none as far as from coal-fired plants. So you can correct me if I'm wrong on that.
1: Well, it has some, but you're, you're right. And they're moving the phase of completely out. But natural gas has an emissions profile. OK. And that emissions profile is hang, hang on one second. Sorry. Uh, the emissions profile is documented. So the grid. We know what the grid South coast air quality management district monitors this Bay area air quality, all the, um, air quality districts monitor it. So there's a baseline. We know what it is. If we're less than the baseline, then there's a benefit to the environment. That's how we go about it.
0: So you rate each project that you do. We do. We study each project that we do. And, uh, Are those ratings uh, that you give your projects, uh, are they publicly available or this uh, primarily for your private clients?
1: No, that's public. Well, if the client is okay with us disclosing them, we will disclose them. We, We talk generically about a certain size project, how many kilowatts. So we can do it that way as well.
0: So the goal is to uh, have less emissions than the standard utilities, uh, correct?
1: Absolutely. And we do that all the time. There's not a case that we would have higher emissions than a utility. Now, remember, utilities also have solar farms. And they also have other types of resources. And they're developing batteries. So when we're speaking, that's a pretty broad statement that I made. But let's say when we're comparing it to fossil fuel generating sources, the answer to the question is yes.
0: I ask you a question in terms of what percentage of uh, the state of California or the country or other parts of the world are, are being served by microgrids currently. And uh, where do you see that going in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah, we're
1: less than 2% in California probably less than a percent. Um, I see that going up to 10, 15% within a decade and even higher in other countries. Uh, Other countries uh, have a different type of utility structure, less reliable, and it's more conducive to small pockets of energy production. Uh, Where we're competing again, we're competing with a shareholder-owned utility that uh, is going to defend its turf pretty rigorously.
0: Right, well, certainly that's something that I think would help all of us is a little bit of competition for our utilities uh, because for pretty much since their inception, as you described earlier, they've, uh, they've dominated the communities that they've served and didn't have much competition. And many times they were monopolies So uh, giving them a little bit of a run for their money uh, is always useful to uh, improve their performance. Uh, You've been listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. Again, my guest, Steve Wilburn, CEO of Verde Watts. You can find Steve and uh, Verde Watts at verdewatts.com. Uh, it's a pleasure having Steve on the show, and we look forward to hearing more about uh, this topic as we go forward. Because, as Steve said, it is definitely the wave of the future that the microgrid has uh, is going to take uh, take hold here in this country. So you heard you heard it here on KBC 790 and Unite and Heal America.
2: As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-4U. That's 844 mlg for u or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.